Well, as we turn our attention to the Word of God this morning, I appreciate that David uh, both preached last week and then read from Psalm 75 this morning, that in the midst of an unstable uh, community uh, world in which we live in, God is steady and strong. And I've titled the, the message this morning, just going to take a, maybe a week or two away from John, but I've titled the message, How Not to Ruin Grace Church. Uh, that's my, my title. In fact, it was, um, uh, in fact, before I put that negative on there, I had How to Ruin Grace Church, which sounded somewhat uh, negative, and so we'll spin it in the right way, at least from the Word of God, How Not to Ruin uh, Grace Church. That's my title this morning as we prepare for communion. I was away on vacation. We had a wonderful time with our family. Sometimes when you get opportunity to be away, it gives you time to reflect, time to think, time to relax. And uh, my heart is so very encouraged about Grace Church. In fact, actually, I'm very elated with all that is going on. When I look out and I see what the Lord has done in these just short eight years, my heart is very, very encouraged. We've grown numerically, even more importantly, we've grown spiritually in the things of Christ. We have resources to sustain our present ministry. We are on the verge of of a new building, which we're so thankful for. Maybe beyond even the physical component of a new building, I think my heart always remains so encouraged regarding the joy of our church, regarding the unity of our church, regarding the sweet spirit that is found in our church, which is maybe one of the best things that the Lord has given to us. He's given us, you, a humble, gracious people with a sweet spirit. But lest we become prideful, let us examine a church this morning just as we come into the Lord's table that was on the verge of collapse, that we might not ruin Grace Church. I mean, I suppose there's many ways that uh, a church can be ruined. Sometimes the church obviously gets ruined from the top down. Uh, It gets watered down. It becomes mediocre. It loses its voice. Sometimes a a church gets ruined from within. It implodes. And so I suppose my message this morning is both corporately to us, but it's also individually. You sitting in the pew, you might be a young woman. You have a tremendous part that you play in this church. You think me? Oh, yes, you. You might be 16 or 17 or 18 or 19. You have a tremendous part. You might be a young man. You have a tremendous part. You might be in your 70s and you think, do I have a a part? Well, Well, sure. You could either strengthen the church or we can be part, both corporately and individually, of ruining a church. And so I want to bring you to a church that was on the verge of dying. It was not dead yet, but it was close to death. It was on life support, okay? 
And when our Lord addressed this church, they were in ICU. And I think there's a lot of churches in ICU this morning as we speak. What's fascinating about this church is we're not going to read about doctrinal heresy, which is somewhat interesting. Usually you would think if our Lord indicted a church, he would come after it doctrinally. In this case, he doesn't. He doesn't really even name, does our Lord, a, a personal sin. But the spiritual condition of this church was maybe it's just best to say they were lukewarm. Lukewarm believers. And it made our Lord sick. It was the church at Laodicea. In fact, you could even title the church if you wanted to, Lukewarm Laodicea. In fact, a friend of mine, Francis Chan, preached a sermon and he titled it Lukewarm Laodicea and Loving It. And so I want to help us this morning to be an active participant to not ruin Grace Church. And that includes me. That includes our elder board. That includes the deacons and the the deaconesses. It includes every one of us. I want our church to be vital, don't you? And strong in the coming generations. And I know you do as well. Let me take you to the book of Revelation. Would you look there? Revelation chapter 3. Open it there to chapter 3 and verse 14. We are coming to the seventh church that was described by our Lord in chapters 2 and 3. And it is to the church in Laodicea. Let me go ahead and read the text for you. We'll get as far as we can this Lord's Day. And if we don't finish, you can come back next week. It says, and to the angel, and I'm reading, you follow along at verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me the gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What a strong statement. Certainly, if you've been in Christ, you're familiar with that phrasing, that strong statement that because you are lukewarm in verse 16 and neither hot nor cold, I will 
spit you out of my mouth. And certainly you're aware you've heard that verse maybe many times over in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's fascinating. Maybe I'll get to this either today if we don't have time. Maybe next week. Jesus Christ is outside the door. We use it evangelistically. I I suppose it could. But he's saying, I'm standing outside the door of this church. Here is a a church, if you will, where Christ is not inside it. Now, he is by way of his presence, but he's standing at the door and knocking and wants intimacy with the people that are found there. John Stott said, perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the church in our day than this one. Seven letters, here's the last one. This may be the most appropriate. He says it describes vividly the respectable, nominal, rather sentimental, skin-deep religiosities that is so widespread among us today. He said our Christianity is flabby and anemic, and we appear, we appear to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion. I think that's well said. Laodicea was a lukewarm church. And our Lord's message to Laodicea was a spiritual wake-up call to the lukewarm church of America. And possibly, it's a needy word for you today at Grace Church of the Valley. And so I bring this to you. I bring it to my own heart, but I'm speaking directly to you. I'm speaking to you families. I'm speaking to you men. I'm speaking to you mothers and singles. It's a needy word for us. Now, as I mentioned, these seven letters come to churches that are in that part of the world in which John wrote or Jesus wrote or spoke in Asia. And uh, here is the church of Laodicea. Now, let me just remind you of a few things of these seven churches. Each of these seven churches is a historical church in Asia Minor. So when it's written here, and when Jesus speaks here, okay, and, and maybe I should just tell you that. You've got your, your Bible open. Look over at John chapter 2, 1, when it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, Obviously, you can see there that the Lord Jesus Christ the risen Lord of of Revelation chapter 1, is telling John the Apostle what to write. So recognize that as I speak this morning, these are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to these churches. Number one, though, these churches are historical churches. There was a church in Ephesus. There was a church in Smyrna. There was a church in Philadelphia. There's a church here in Laodicea. Secondly, by the Spirit of God, not only are they historical churches, but they're representative of different churches today. In other words, as he writes, does John, as he hears from the risen, resurrected, glorified Christ, these seven churches represent different churches today in the 21st century. They fall into this pattern. And then thirdly, may I say, is that they're representative of individual Christians today. In other words, as he speaks collectively, as he speaks corporately, he's speaking, though, individually to each of us. And so what I want to do briefly this morning is to examine 
three features of the church in Laodicea. And if we can hear or heed our Lord's words to Laodicea, then we have and we can have an enduring and a pleasing church, okay? I mean, if we can heed what he says here, we can be pleasing to the Lord. But we're always just one generation from going extinct. And I care greatly for our church, and I love our church, and I don't want to ruin Grace Church, and I know you don't want to ruin it. So you might say, well, what can I do that I can help this church thrive? What can I do to be an active participant? Listen, make no mistake about it. You're only here for one reason. is for us to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. We'll speak more of that in August at our ministry fair. But we're here to build you up. We're here to mature you. If you're a new family today, this is what our church is about. We're not putting out pious platitudes today. I'm not trying to be well-liked. I'm not trying to be fun. I'm not trying to be energetic. I'm not trying to be well-liked. I have a task from the Lord and my calling, and that's to equip you. You say, equip me to do what? To do the work of the ministry. Well, why? So that the body of Christ is built up. Why? So that Christ can be put on display. That's our goal. And so we want to encourage you today, equip you today, but... It's only strong churches that can penetrate the community. You say, well, what, what are these features in this church at Laodicea? Number one, let me just cite it this way. The city and the church of Laodicea. It's not really directed towards you. Just let me tell you a little bit about, number one, the city and the church of Laodicea. Look down in the scripture there in verse 14. It says, and to the angel... Of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, as I mentioned there in verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, this is the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the words of Christ himself. Now, you'll note there, it says in verse 14, to the angel of the church. You say, Pastor, what's that talking about? Well, it's not talking about what comes into your mind, angels. There's an angel at Grace Church, like, uh, like an angel that you would think a heavenly angel. That's not the text. The text is, in the Greek, it's a messenger. It's an angelos. So he's writing, if you will, to the messenger of the church in Laodicea. He's writing either to the pastor of the church or to the pastoral leadership of the church. And you can follow that through all seven churches that he writes. Now here, he's writing to the leader and probably to the leadership of the church in Laodicea. Now you say, what do you mean Laodicea? It's a city. Antiochus II founded the city of Laodicea. He founded it, he founded it around, or found it, you could say, around 250 B.C. He named it after his wife, makes sense, her name was Laodice, okay? He founded Laodicea, his wife's name was Laodice. And Laodicea was situated, this will be important later on, between two cities. Hyoporolis, if you will, was to the north, okay, and to the south was a church that you might know by the name of Colossae, okay, which is, he wrote the book of Colossians to. 
So you got Hyoporolis to the north and Colossae to the south, okay? And Laodicea was at a major highway that ran from Ephesus in the west to another city, Phrygia, was in the east. And when you think of Laodicea, it was the industrial hub for activity from all sides. In fact, there are many historians that would say that Laodicea was the financial center for all of Asia at this time. In fact, this city kept large quantities of gold, large quantities of silver. They had Roman currency in abundance. In fact, as you read history, it was the banks of Laodicea that businessmen came from all over Asia to finance their business ventures across the globe. There are some historians that say of Laodicea that it was the wealthiest city in the world at that point, at that time. In fact, you can begin also to read in the annals of history that there was a devastating earthquake in around 60 A.D., And uh, Rome offered to help, but Laodicea rebuilt their city with their own resources rather than asking for help from Rome. In other words, Rome was going to step in. They were going to provide what our country does when cities are devastated. And Laodicea said, thanks, we don't want your tax benefits. We don't want your credits. We will do it ourselves. In fact, Laodicea was not only a wealthy city, but it was renowned for their clothing factories. Specifically, beloved, they had this shiny black wool that would be woven into these very expensive garments and carpets. They were known for that. You might even say that they were a fashion town. They were trendy. Whenever you think about Laodicea, in some ways, materialistically, they had it all. They were in vogue. In fact, not only uh, from a a work and a business standpoint, but they were also on the cutting edge of the time in the medical world. They were renowned for creating an ointment, just kind of like an eye salve, if you will, that helped cure eye disease. They produced this, and people came all over the globe to get it. You say, well, why am I telling you this? Because here's why. The church often mirrors the culture. And our Lord is going to rebuke them for their materialism. He's going to rebuke them for their manufacturing. He's going to rebuke them for their medical adventures apart from a relationship with the person of Christ. Certainly those things are not bad and of themselves, but apart from intimacy, Christ is concerned. And the church of Laodicea, as we will see, was so wealthy that they didn't even need to depend upon God. They were sufficient by themselves. They were independent, not only in their culture, but they became independent from the ways of the Lord. Now, a church was founded in Laodicea. By whom and when, we just don't know, okay? We don't know. We don't find that in the missionary journeys. I think it's fascinating, beloved, that Laodicea was the only church of the seven that Christ had nothing to praise them for. Nothing. There's not one commendation that you're going to find here. I mean, even worldly Sardis, look back at verse 4. He says there in chapter 3, verse 4, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white. 
I mean, even in Sardis, there were a few that had not soiled their garments. But Laodicea, nothing positive was said. Their faith was anemic. Their love for Christ was indifferent. And their pride was appalling. You say, well, what happened? What does our Lord say to this church? I mean, beloved, just if you can crawl back in this time, we think it's probably later when John wrote Revelation, probably in the 90s. Christ was crucified nearly 60 years prior. This is late in his ministry when he wrote this book. But imagine the scene when the pastor, when the angel, when the angelos, when the leadership comes with this letter from Jesus, and they smugly and confidently think they should maybe be nominated for the church of the year. Look what they've done. What will he praise us for? Maybe they were thinking. But look secondly at the criticism. The criticism of Laodicea. Look at verse 15. Here's what Jesus said. He said, I know your works. In another translation, I know your deeds. That you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, he says. He says, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Here is the criticism of Laodicea. As the pastor reads this letter, their mouths must have dropped open to hear the resurrected, risen, glorified, majestic Christ say, I will spit you out of my mouth. In fact, look at verse 17. He says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. Beloved, our Lord diagnosed this church with a heart disease. They hear a stinging indictment that is unparalleled in the letters to the seven churches. And our Lord brings the most hard-hitting rebuke of all to the smug, self-righteous, prideful church. Jesus says, the omniscient one says, I know your works. I mean, even just sitting right there this morning and standing for me, he knows everything about us corporately. He knows everything about us individually. I know all about you. In fact, you say, how does he know it? Well, look back in chapter 113. Do you remember that scene where he turned on the island of Patmos and saw Jesus Christ? And, And he saw him, and it was an incredible scene in which he saw him when he said in verse 14, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held the seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. In other words, this is not mild, meek Jesus. This is risen, resurrected, majestic, glorified Christ. But the thing about the description in chapter 1 that always got me was in chapter 1 verse 13 when it says and in the midst do you see this of the lampstands one like the son of man clothed a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest there he is in the midst of the lampstands you say what do you mean he's in the okay you're in he has this picture 
and he's in the midst of these lampstands. You say, well, what are the lampstands? Well, it's obvious. Look at verse 20 of chapter 1. For the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels, the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven, what? Churches. And you say, well, Scott, what's the point? He's in the middle of it. So it's amazing that even though he's on the outside knocking, I want you to know that as I speak today, he's in the middle of every church in the globe. He's in the middle of those lampstands. He's in the middle of his church. He's there with a gazing eye. He's there with a scrutinizing understanding. There's nothing that he doesn't know. You say, well, Scott, then why does he let some churches go the way they go? Well, sometimes he does let them go. He removes their lampstands. He removes their influence. You go look at some of the denominations today with some of the compromise, wholesale compromise that has taken place. He's just removed himself. He just took that church out, and there's little influence today for the gospel. And I shudder to think that that could ever happen to us. But I come to you this morning that our church will only be as strong as you individually. Our church is only going to be as strong as we walk with him and love him as you will see. He says, but I know your deeds. I know your works. And it reveals your condition. He says, I know that you're neither cold or hot. Would that you were cold or hot. He says, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, you've heard about this before. Cold, hot, lukewarm. But what, what does it mean? What does that mean if I would have you that you are cold or hot, but you're not cold or hot, you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Well, remember, we're talking about the church of Laodicea, and history will help us here. Laodicea, as a city, had two outside sources for their water. Hyopolis and another city, as I mentioned, called Colossae. And an aqueduct brought the water seven miles from Colossae, if you will, into Laodicea. Okay, And the water that came from Colossae was very cold. It was very refreshing. It was good for drinking. But on the other hand, Hyoperlis, it's hard to say, um, H-I-E-R is the spelling A-P-O-L-I-S. It was famous, just the opposite, for its mineral hot springs. But therein lay the problem. By the time the hot water from Hyoperlis reached Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And likewise, the cool water from Colossae was no longer cool, but it became lukewarm as well. And the church, beloved, listen, in Laodicea or at Laodicea paralleled this problem. The believers were lukewarm in their affection for Christ. They were, if you will, being cooled by their environment around them, is the thought. You say, well, who are these people that Christ is spitting out of his mouth? I mean, let me just identify these for you just briefly, these spiritual conditions that I call them. He says there of a group in chapter 3 in verse 14, 
He says there, excuse me, in verse 16, as well as in verse 15, you are neither cold nor hot. Now understand, you know, if this helps you at all, he's mentioning and speaking of extremes there. He's talking about something that's cold, and he's talking about something that's hot. The word for cold is sucrose, and it's the ideal of freezing. Now, I believe here that what Jesus is saying is you've got people who are spiritually, in their temperature, cold. They're freezing. They're the unsaved. This is someone, you might say, who is frozen in unbelief. They are indifferent to the gospel. Maybe we could even say cold to the things of God. They have rejected the gospel. They have separated themselves from God. They are unconcerned. We might say that their temperature is cold. In fact, in Matthew 24, 12, it says there, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. And certainly, we know of people like that. He said, I would that you were either cold. And then he says, secondly, hot. And that's just simply the Greek word zestos. And just as the cold is freezing, the hot here is a boiling point. It is a believer. It is someone who's on fire for God. This particular woman or this particular man is passionate. They are fervent. They are hot for Christ, his kingdom, his glory, intimacy in terms of a relationship. There is a burning zeal, we might say, from the Lord. You remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road as he was explaining the scriptures to us. These people are on fire for the Lord. Now, this is not religious emotionalism, but a burning desire for God, a burning desire for his kingdom, a burning desire to know Christ. But Laodicea, you understand, was neither hot nor were they cold. They are, and then you can see it in the text. Look at it again in verse 16. He says, you are lukewarm. And the word just simply means half hot and half cold. In other words, if you took the temperature, they're half-hearted towards Christ. They are a fence straddler. You say, well, who then, Scott, are are the lukewarm? Who are they? Well, there's people who believe different things on that. I would say they're they're one of two people. They're either professing believers who aren't really believers, okay? They're just lukewarm. Or secondly, okay, I think it's fair to say this, they're immature believers at best. They're just immature. They have no reality of the faith they profess. It is someone who has enough of truth and enough friendship at GCV to get by but not enough truth to be life-transforming and genuinely saved. I think there's people who hang on to us because there's a crowd, there's excitement, there's a level of joy. And I think people will always just tend to hang around us and where those people are, don't know always. Lukewarm. In fact, you probably got somebody in mind even now and they're not here today. 
But this is a concern from our Lord. Jesus said, many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So, beloved, I can't always know. Is this, is this an immature believer? Maybe. Is it an unbeliever? Uh, it could be a professing believer. Yes, could be. Don't know. I think of 2 Timothy in, in 3, 5, when Paul said of certain people holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. So it could be just unbelievers. It could be just lukewarm believers. Lukewarm kids. Lukewarm high schoolers or lukewarm adults or moms. You're not hot. You're not cold. You're neither hot nor cold. And Christ says, because you're neither, and, and I'm just, I'm quoting him. I don't mean to be um, over the top here. But he said, I, Jesus did, will spit you out of my mouth. Beloved, it is frightening. He would either have us boil, if you will, with zeal, or freeze over, then live in a status of bland lukewarmness. I mean, our Lord, at least the best I can see it, would rather have us be icy in our indifference than be a cruise control Christian who goes along with the ride and leads a mediocre, lukewarm life. Say, why is that, Scott? Well, lukewarmness, as you can see, is an abomination to the Lord. I mean, if someone is lost, and maybe that's cold, then they may be saved. If someone is lukewarm, on the other hand, there is a dangerous delusion of false spirituality that could send someone straight to hell. It's a frightening thought. I mean, the lukewarm, I'm not sure. The reason I'm pausing here is because it's not how to ruin Grace Church. It's how to not ruin. And he says, I'm standing at the door, maybe of your heart, knocking this morning. So open it to him. And and maybe this is you, and I don't want to cut to the chase here too quick, but you've lost your zeal. You've lost your passion. You've lost your love for the Scripture. And the lukewarm professing believer is a bad witness for the gospel of Christ. It would, better, it would be better for the unbelieving world to be confronted with a small band of zealous believers who are on fire for the Lord than a large group of pseudo-believers who are so enamored by the world that they have squandered all influence of being light in a dark world. Have you ever been around a nominal group of believers? who've had no passion, no zeal, no love for Christ. Listen, if that's your friendships, then get out of them. I'm not saying to not witness to people. Those are the people you ought to be sharing with. But if you find your friendships or your relationships or your dating relationships not leading you to a greater zeal for Christ, then maybe you just need to consider what the Spirit of God and the Lord Jesus Christ would say to you. I mean, it's a horrible witness to others to not be hot or cold, but to be lukewarm. I mean, I think, in essence, Jesus is saying, either be lost so he can save you, or be on fire so as to make an impact on our world, but not lukewarm. He says, if you're lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. And 
the only way I know to say it is that I'm going to, Jesus says, it, it, it's nauseating to me. It makes me throw up. It's what he's saying. And I'll keep it there. One writer put it this way. He said, does that shock you? That's what a writer said. He said, God is not some kind of impassioned accountant in heaven, simply making marks in his divine ledger, running the universe in a cold, calculated way. He is someone with deep emotions, passionate zeal, and a loving heart. And he wants to have a personal, intimate relationship with us. But when you turn your back on him, and you callously yawn at his face, to which he says, you make me want to throw up. That's a strong word, isn't it? It, In other words, it brings a a visceral effect in the pit of the stomach of the Lord Jesus Christ. It triggers, does lukewarmness, a violent, sharp reaction from God. Jesus, you know, he might just say to some of you, and I, I love you, I have nothing in my heart. I don't even know why I'm speaking on this today. I really don't, other than I think I want to not ruin Grace Church, but it could be that Jesus might say, get off the fence, come out for me, or be all out against me, but get hot, get cold, or get out, is the thought. Strong words from our passionate Lord, and so I just gently ask you this morning, as I ask my own heart, are you lukewarm? Are you indifferent to the things of Christ? Are you apathetic towards him? Is your passion missing? I mean, out of all the seven churches, as Stott said, I think Laodicea, as I would say, best describes the American church. We are soaking in a lukewarm bath of mediocrity that just pervades us. I mean, I could ask you this. Have you ever had a a cup of coffee that is lukewarm there's just something gross about it is there not have you ever saw a pepsi can sitting there and thinking it was cold and taking a drink of pepsi it's warm pepsi it's it's just disgusting i mean this is very graphic language you say well why was laodicea lukewarm well scary say why scott They were self-deceived. Look at the text. Look at verse 17. He says, for you say, Christ is speaking, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. And this is frightening. Underline this. Not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. This is thirdly, the cause of Laodicea's condition. The cause of of Laodicea's condition. They considered themselves rich in need of nothing. Beloved, they didn't even know. They were ignorant. They were arrogant. They were independent, if you will. And the great physician gets the scalpel out and he begins to go to surgery. He goes into surgery in their hearts. I mean, they thought that they passed checkpoint And Jesus says, oh no, you're on the verge of passing out. They boasted in their cutting-edge medicine to restore physical sight. All the while, they were spiritually blind, and they didn't know it. 
In other words, he says, you think you're materially rich, but you're spiritually poor. You think you're financially wealthy, but you're spiritually wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. In fact, look at verse 17 again. It says, and I need nothing. (laughs) In other words, it mirrored them. And I guess maybe just from my heart to yours, our church will never arrive until Jesus comes, right? But the worst thing we can do is just think we got it all together. Or, Or your pastor's got it all together. Or we're all together. No, no, we're beggars, are we not? All of us. On our knees before the face of God. But here, this church had caught the disease of pride. Beloved anthrax had swept into the church in the form of a white powdered substance called mediocrity. And they were exposed. And infection was on the loose. And nobody knew it. That's scary. Certainly, you remember Hans Christian Andersen's story of the emperor's new clothes. Not the emperor's new groove, but the emperor's new clothes. You know the story. A certain emperor was fond of appearances. He was fond of clothing. So when the clever philosophers, actually they were con men, offered to weave him a very rare and costly garment, he was quite receptive to it. He liked their promise that the garment would be invisible to all but the wise and the pure in hearts. And so the delighted emperor commissioned his new clothing at a great cost, and the conmen con sat before their empty looms, and they pretended to be weaving. Soon the emperor's curiosity became such that he sent his chief minister to see how things were going. Seeing no cloth on the busy looms and yet not wanting to be thought of unwise of heart, the official returned, remember, with a report about the beauty of the cloth. And after a time, the weavers asked for more money. And again, the emperor became impatient, sending his second chief minister, who returned with an even more enthusiastic report. And then next, the emperor went himself. Do you remember? Though he saw nothing, he did not want to appear stupid. And so he proclaimed the clothing excellent and beautiful. He even gave the weavers medals. They weren't doing anything, though, right? Finally, on the day that sat, they sat before the grand parade, the con men dressed the emperor in his nakedness, remember? And then they skipped town. And as the emperor paraded before his people, we might say, ah, natural, they all joined in praising his beautiful new clothing, lest they be thought of as fools. And then the absurd parade continued. Until a moment of quietness, a child was heard to say that the emperor has, what? No clothes. And at once, everyone knew the truth, including the emperor himself. One innocent but honest remark by a small child who didn't know enough to keep his mouth shut stripped away the hypocritical pretense of an entire nation. And Jesus just says, listen here. He says, your banks, your bank account, they're fabulous. Your your medical endeavors, your eye salve, if you will, is commendable. Your clothes, your shiny black wool garments, he says, are stylish. He says, but you, as a church, are lukewarm. You're putrid. And so lukewarm, I'm asking you, is that you this morning as we come to the Lord's table in just a moment.
Listen, you say, is it all lost? Oh, no. It's never all lost with the Lord, is it? You say, well, what does he do? I, well, we run out of time, but look at verse 19. This is what makes me think he's talking to us. He says, those whom I love, I what? Reprove and discipline. They just stop there for a moment. Some of you, you come into the Lord's house in the midst of troubles. And you think the Lord has lost sight of you. And it could be that those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And then he tells us something to do. Look at verse 19. He says, so be zealous. There's that boiling point. Be zealous and what? Repent. Listen, it's not too late. It's not in any way. I don't know if I've ever told you about my friend in Chicago. I haven't talked to him in a few years, but he's still his, he comes into my mind. This is not in my notes. It just popped into my mind. His name was Gordy, 50 years old, growing up his whole life in Wheaton, the bastion of Christian faith, Wheaton over in Illinois, Wheaton College, and all the things that are associated with it. But he woke up one day at 50, and he, he just said, I, for all my learning, all my schooling, all my education, I am just lukewarm. And he determined from that day on that he was going to put his nose in the book, that he was going to start praying, that he was going to start living like he knew a believer should live. And I'll tell you, I'll never forget the change in his life. That man got on fire for the Lord. I'm sure if, he call, if I called him today, he's still on fire. He's well into his upper 70s by this point, maybe. But I'm telling you, the guy's whole life turned around because he realized that his life was not amounting to anything. There are some people who teach on the hot nor the cold are not the issues. The issues were that I would have that you are hot and cold. The issue is lukewarmness. And how they defined the lukewarmness was that this church had lost its influence. In other words, the water became useless and the church became useless because they were in a status of lukewarmness. Listen, if that's you this morning, then I would just say I would encourage you to repent. I would encourage you to recognize the discipline of the Lord, that those whom the Lord loves, he reproves. He said in verse 20, behold, you see it a little clearer now. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, Jesus said, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. We use that evangelistically, but maybe here this morning, his voice through the teaching of his word is speaking to you and he's standing outside your life because you've removed him out. You've made decisions that have put him on the periphery rather than inviting him into your own heart as a way of life that you would be on fire for the Lord. Listen, do you ever remember those days when you were just so on fire for the Lord? Oh, maybe there was some emotionalism in there, but I pray that um, at the same time that there would be a zeal that all of us would maintain, would there not? John Piper shared this. And I usually don't share this at the end because it's a story of his. And sometimes it's better to leave your own words than the words of someone else. But listen to Piper. He said, and I'm reading and accounting this as we come to the table. 
He said, my father was an evangelist. Piper said, I trembled to hear my dad preach. He said, in spite of the predictable opening humor, the whole thing struck me as absolutely blood earnest. There was a certain squint to his eye and a tightening of his lips when the avalanche of biblical text came to a climax in application. Oh, how he would preach, Piper said. Children, teenagers, young singles, young married people, and the middle-aged old people, he would press the warnings and the wooings of Christ into the heart of each person. He had stories, Piper said. So many stories for each age group, stories of glorious conversion, stories of horrific refusals to believe, followed by tragic deaths, he said. Seldom could those stories come without tears. He said, for me as a boy, one of the most gripping illustrations my fiery father used was the story of a man converted in old age. The church had prayed for this man for decades. He was hard. He was resistant. But this time, for some reason, he showed up when my father was preaching. At the end of the service, during a hymn, to everyone's amazement, he came and took my father's hand. They sat down together on the front pews of the church as the people were dismissed. God opened his heart to the gospel of Christ, and he was saved from his sins and given eternal life. But that did not stop him, Piper said. That did not stop him from sobbing and saying as the tears ran down his wrinkled face and what an impact it made on me to hear my father say through his own tears, I've wasted it. I've wasted it. Piper said this was the story that gripped me more than all the stories of young people who died in car wrecks before they were converted. The story of an old man weeping that he had wasted his life. And Piper said in those early years, God awakened in me a fear and a passion not to waste my life. The thought of coming to my old age and saying through tears, I've wasted it, I've wasted it, was a fearful and horrible thought to me. Listen, how to not ruin Grace Church? Listen, don't be lukewarm. If you feel those effects, then pray this morning as we come to the Lord's table. The Lord will wondrously restore you, wondrously be gracious to you. Listen, I want our church to be healthy, don't you? I want our church for the next generation to be super strong. When I'm standing back there and I'm putting my mic on and I'm watching Trace play the drums, I want to make sure our church is good for him, good for his family, good for his kids if the Lord gives him kids. Don't say that to him this morning. But I just, I want to have generations that are loving Christ. And I just feel it every single week that we're laying tracks here for a foundation that might cost me something, might cost you something. And I think that day may be coming. But listen, Whatever we do, let's not be lukewarm. Amen?